Today on The Recommended Dose, another very special guest, this time from the world of food. Professor Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies and Public Health at New York University. With a career that spans five decades and encompasses teaching, advocacy and a prolific publishing schedule. She's the author of 10 books, among them prize-winning volumes like Food Politics, What to Eat and Soda Politics. Her most recent book, Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, was published just last year. Alongside her many books, Marion shares her insights daily on her popular blog at foodpolitics.com. And her Twitter account has been ranked among the top 10 in health by Science Magazine, Time Magazine and The Guardian. She was also named by Forbes as the world's number two most powerful foodies after Michelle Obama. With no shortage of territory to cover, I started off by asking Marianne, given the landscape of nutrition seems so hard to navigate, if there was anything simple when it comes to food. Yes, and the principles are very simple. And in fact, they're so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can summarize the principles in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. This, for me, describes a diet that's delicious and takes care of problems. And by food, it means real food. By not too much, that's pretty obvious. And mostly plants means eat your veggies. It's pretty simple. So if it's really that simple, you know, why is there so much debate and discussion and dietary advice, these huge industries built around this? I mean, in Food Politics, one of your great books, you talked about this contradiction between the simplicity of good advice and the confusion about diet that so many of us feel. Well, partly because the principles are difficult to follow. If you live in a society that is pushing foods that are not real foods and not vegetables on you all the time, um, and that comes from the fact that food is an enormous business, everybody eats, and lots and lots and lots of people are making great amounts of money from what people eat, and the most profitable products are the ones that are anything but real foods. They're what are now called ultra-processed foods, foods with long lists of ingredients that don't resemble in any way the foods from which they were made. That's where the profits are in the food system, and that creates a problem for everybody. If you live in a society where food is pushed at you all day long and in which it's socially acceptable to eat eat all day long, anywhere at all, and in very large amounts. We're not a hungry population anymore. I mean, there are people in the world who don't have enough food and are hungry, and they don't have the kind of issues around food that so many people in Western societies do. Hunger is not an issue for us. We have an infinite number of choices of food. The big issue is you know, how do we make ourselves feel good? And it's very easy in the current environment to overeat. And most people do. 
You've been in this field for a very long time, Marianne. What do you see as the key issues in nutrition today? And how has the landscape changed during your extraordinary career that began back in the 60s? Well, I think two things have happened. For one thing, there's vastly more interest in food now than there was 20 years ago. There's a food movement, it's certainly in the United States and in plenty of other places too, where vast numbers of individuals and organizations are working on food issues ranging from what we eat to trying to prevent climate change. So there's a big population interest in food. It's a hot issue and it gets hotter every year. When I wrote Food Politics in 2002, one of the reasons for that book was that I was going to meetings about childhood obesity in which every speaker at the meeting would talk about how we needed to figure out ways to get mothers to feed their children better. And I thought, really? That's what everybody's worried about? Why isn't anybody talking about food industry marketing? And it was as if food industry marketing was, and to many people still is, completely invisible. It's supposed to be invisible. If you're doing really good marketing, nobody notices it. And so I wrote Food Politics because I never wanted to go to another meeting on childhood obesity and hear about how mothers weren't doing their jobs. And that has happened. Meetings about obesity, whether for childhood or adults, are all fretting about what to do about food industry marketing and the billions of dollars that food companies spend every year to get us to eat exactly the kinds of foods we shouldn't be eating. So that marketing, obviously, that's been central to a lot of the work that you've been doing and you've been critical of. I mean, is one of the reasons it's invisible or has been invisible, as you say, is because it's so ubiquitous, because it's everywhere? It's part of the landscape. You know, uh, Coca-Cola is an international icon standing for fun and pleasure and sports and music and all kinds of things that people like. And you never think of the Coca-Cola company as a corporation, which, like every other corporation, has stockholders to please and has as its primary goal selling Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, I, I feel like a lot of my work has been aimed at describing the obvious, that food marketing encourages people to buy foods, and that food companies are not social service agencies or public health agencies. They're businesses, like any other business, with stockholders to please and profits to make. And they're primary focus, and it's laser-like, is to get people to buy more of their most profitable products. That seems kind of obvious to me, but to many people it came as a big surprise. We could talk about marketing for this whole interview, but let's talk about this uh, more complicated, difficult issue of how industry skews science, which I think is the subtitle of your latest book, Unsavory Truth. In a nutshell, how does industry distort science? Because that's a big claim. Well, all it has to do is pay for it. It really doesn't have to do anything else because the influence of industry funding usually occurs 
just like marketing at an unconscious level. People who take money from industry to do their research aren't aware of the influence. They didn't intend to be influenced. They think they're completely independent. They don't recognize the influence, and they typically deny it. But there is an enormous body of research that demonstrates that Industry funding skews research, and in fact, there's a group in Australia, Lisa Biro's group at the University of Sydney, that studies this phenomenon, and her work and that of her colleagues demonstrates that industry funding biases research, and that most of that bias occurs in the way the research question is framed. But what we know from research on the drug industry, the chemical industry, the tobacco industry, is that industry-funded research almost invariably comes out with results that favor the sponsor's interest. They're predictable. If you see an industry-funded study, it's got a really, really good chance of coming out with a result that is exactly what the company wanted. That's why they're paying for it. In any case, Lisa Biro's work shows that most of the bias occurs in the way the research question is framed. That's the most obvious place for it. And it's really easy to understand that. It's really easy to design studies that give you the result you want. Um, I get letters all the time from food companies or trade associates associations saying, we have $50,000 and we're looking for research proposals that will uh, demonstrate the benefits of our products, either for heart disease prevention, for sexual function, for cognitive function, whatever. We're looking for research proposals that will demonstrate benefits. Well, the only proposals that they're going to get are proposals that are designed to demonstrate benefits. That's not science. That's marketing research. If you want to do science, your question is a very different one. It's what is the effect of this product? It's not prove benefits. It's what's the effect? An open-ended question that very well could come out with results that do not favor the sponsor's interest. So I think this occurs in a way that people just aren't aware of, and investigators are human like everybody else and subject to the influence of gifts. And this has been shown over and over and over again. It does remind me of the tobacco industry's playbook, which was, I think I'm right in saying that one of their key strategies was to manufacture doubt. Well, that was the number one strategy, always. Cast doubt on the science that suggests anything wrong with your products. And the food industry has followed the playbook to the letter. It funds research. It says diets are a matter of personal responsibility. Um, it funds scientists. It influences the research. We now have increasing body of research demonstrating that companies influence the research that they fund in really sometimes quite shocking ways. Uh, for example, a paper came out recently that showed that Coca-Cola was um, refusing to allow researchers to publish research that came out with results they didn't like. That's not science. That's marketing. 
Let's talk a little bit about the other side here. So we've talked a little bit about the way in which industry likes to use its influence and set up relationships that can work in terms of influence peddling. The other side of this is if companies see that there are particular uh, researchers or particular policymakers that they can't influence, then they can tend to play hardball. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, that goes back to the playbook again that was initiated with such great skill and success by the tobacco industry. When it became clear that smoking cigarettes raised risk for lung cancer, the tobacco industry, instead of taking cigarettes off the market, instead embarked on this enormous public relations campaign, which is what is called the playbook. And the first item on it was to cast doubt on any research that suggested that cigarettes might be harmful. Blame cigarette smoking on personal responsibility. It's not our fault if you smoke. It's up to you. We're not holding a gun to your head, forcing you to smoke. Use public relations. Just confuse the science to the extent that you can. Um, And then behind the scene, you do everything you can to make sure that governments don't regulate you. You promote self-regulation. We'll regulate ourselves. We'll take our worst products off the market. We'll do this. We'll do that. Um, And then behind the scenes, you do everything you can to lobby governments not to do anything that would reduce sales of your products. Now, the food industry has also adopted this as as does the pharmaceutical, the chemical, and many other industries. But I'm interested in the food industry. So the food industry, on the one hand, argues that diets are a matter of personal choice. You know, we're just giving people choices. How many times have you heard that? It's, um, you know, really sugary beverages, they're only a small part of the diet, and they're really not harmful. You know, the companies fund research to show that any research that suggests harm of their products is so badly flawed that you don't have to pay any attention to it, and that exercise is more important than what you eat in gaining weight, that sort of thing. They're really good at what they do. And then behind the scenes, they're lobbying like mad. And, you know, one of the things, I I talk about Coca-Cola a lot for two reasons. I wrote a book about it, Soda Politics, which came out in 2015. But since then, a very large number of emails have been published because they were requested through the Freedom of Information Act And they demonstrate Coca-Cola's really quite intimate involvement in the way the research questions were formulated and the way the, the research was conducted, interpreted, and presented. So that's a company that got caught. It's not that Coca-Cola is any different than any other food company. It's just that they got caught. Isn't it also the case that, speaking of emails and Coca-Cola, that your name accidentally popped up in some emails that I (laughs) think were hacked from the Democratic Party and that in one of the emails, Coca-Cola received some PR advice, public relations advice, to keep an eye on what you were doing and saying. Is that correct? Yes, what I was doing and what Lisa Biro was doing. I was in Australia. I mean, I was really shocked when those emails came out. Those are the ones that were hacked by the Russians and posted on a website called DC Leaks. 
And when they came out, I was absolutely shocked. I didn't have anything to do with the election campaign. I couldn't imagine why my name would come up in emails, in this cache of emails from Hillary Clinton's advisors. But one of her advisors was um, consulting for Coca-Cola during the time she was working on the Clinton campaign. And she was being paid $7,000 a month as a retainer for doing so. And I got caught up in this because I was at the University of Sydney working in Lisa Biro's group. And I was asked to give a talk on soda politics to a group, to the Australian Nutrition Society. And as I was walking into my talk, somebody said, you know, there's somebody from Coca-Cola here. Uh, Do you mind? And I said, no, I've just written this book about the soda industry. I assume there's somebody from Coca-Cola at every talk I give and thought nothing of it. And it turns out that what turned up in these emails were excellent notes on my talk. I mean, word for word, they were really beautifully done. I was very impressed. Um, Wow. Along with recommendations that Coca-Cola keep an eye on me and keep an eye on Lee Sabiro during the time I was in Australia. So the Lee Sabiro messages ended up on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, But I was really kind of amazed by the whole thing. That's the first chapter of Unsavory Truth. (laughs) Are you worried by that kind of personal scrutiny by one of the largest food companies on the planet? Does that worry you or does it inspire you? No, it made me laugh. I thought it was really funny that really this company doesn't have anything better to do than to go to my lectures and take notes on them and pass them up the chain of command. No, I actually have very civil relationships with executives at Coca-Cola. I've met with presidents of Coca-Cola North America several times in my office. They want to know what I have to say. My life is pretty public. Speaking of soft drinks, you've been a vocal and especially effective proponent of soda taxes, which have now been introduced in 40 countries, I think. Yes, I wish I could take credit for it, but I really don't have any way of measuring what my influence is. What I did was to write a book that provides a research basis for soda taxes and also... I wrote it as an advocacy manual if people want to work on soda taxes there. It has lots of different ways of doing that. Soda taxes really started in California and then quickly went to Mexico. Mexico was the first country to pass a soda tax. And then several cities in the United States have them now. And about 40 countries in the world have adopted soda taxes. They do several things at once. They raise the price of sodas. They are associated with a reduction in purchase of sodas. And the revenues from those, if if used for public health purposes, are pretty popular. They raise a lot of revenue. Um, And the ideal one, I suppose, is the Berkeley soda tax, Berkeley, California, which did everything right. And the soda tax was passed by a vote of 76%, which is astounding. In the United States, everything is split practically 50-50 these days. But that was a 76% vote in favor of the soda tax. And Berkeley has been diligent in evaluating the results of the tax 
tax, sales of sodas or sugar-sweetened beverages are way down, sales of water are up, and the money is being used exactly in the way that the voters were told the money would be used for public health purposes. So is this an example of evidence informing good health policy and food policy? I think it's an excellent example. It's probably the best example. One immediate reaction here, and this is not a field I know well, but is there a sense in which this is potentially punishing people who already don't have much money? I'm imagining that raising the prices of of soft drinks and soda could impact quite detrimentally financially on people who spend proportions of their budget on that. The Berkeley soda tax was passed because the Berkeley community, the the soda tax advocates, did phenomenal community organizing. And one of the things they did was to go into low-income communities and ask people if they had relatives or if they knew anyone who had type 2 diabetes, and practically everybody did. So yes, soda taxes are regressive. They are a greater burden on the poor than the rich. But as I like to put it, type 2 diabetes is regressive. It has a much greater impact on the poor than the rich. More recently, I think you've been involved in evaluating the the Trump administration's food policies. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I'm on a Lancet commission. Lancet is a British medical journal um, that commissions articles about various issues. And I'm on a Lancet commission that's looking at public health during the Trump administration. There was a conference in which various members of the commission presented their work, and I gave one on what the Trump administration is doing to nutrition policy. Uh, In a word, nothing good. In every single area of food and nutrition policy, I would say what seem to me to be reasonable public health policies are being undermined or attacked. And this is in every one, agricultural supports. The biggest one that everybody is worried about is the safety net for the poor, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, um, which is under siege from the Republican administration to try to cut its budget, reduce its enrollments, and require work of the people who receive these benefits, even if the work is at wages too low to support a family. That's the biggest one that everybody's worried about because it's a constant source of attack. But the school lunch rules, the school nutrition standards that were passed by the Obama administration have been rolled back to some extent. Labeling regulations have been delayed. Any new initiatives that would put the United States in line with other countries have been stopped. I mean, in every single area of nutrition and food policy, there have been problems, not as bad as the environmental area, but still pretty bad. Speaking of environment, I think you and many others are making the connection between what's happening with food, uh, the obesity epidemic, and climate change, and that there may be some 
good news, if you will, that there may be win-win situations. If we can wind back obesity, we can improve diets. It could also help with climate change. Can you tell me about that connection? Well, you sound like the global syndemic report that was published in Lancet, chaired by Boyd Swinburne, uh, who's now in New Zealand, but used to be in Australia, right? And this is this enormous report that came out of one of these Lancet commissions that talked about triple-duty policies that would work very, very well to reduce climate change, reduce malnutrition, and reduce obesity all at the same time. And the report mentioned four of them. One was to try to reduce, in Western societies, to reduce production and consumption of meat, that would have a big effect on climate change and also improve health in various ways. To promote dietary recommendations that foster eating more plant foods, fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, and so forth. And then establishing a framework for looking, for developing food systems that would work to prevent climate change, undernutrition and overnutrition. And then the one that really got my attention was to put some restrictions on food industry marketing and make the food industry accountable for the kinds of products that it sells and the effect of its products on health. I thought that this is the first time I've ever seen anything like that in a major journal, and I was really impressed. Well, while we're on a positive note, I think I'm right in saying you have a friendship with someone called Alice Waters, who some of our listeners may know, quite a famous chef in California who promotes good food and promotes gardens for school kids and so on. Has that friendship in any way impacted on your work in nutrition science? Well, I think Alice is an inspiration to absolutely everybody because here she is running this little restaurant in uh, Berkeley, California that's been around for 45 years now, which in, is, in itself is astonishing. And she has these pie-in-the-sky ideas that everybody thinks are just completely fantastic and unachievable, like having gardens in schools. What could be crazier than that? And yet there are thousands of schools in America now that have gardens where children are growing food, harvesting the food, preparing the food and eating the food, and it completely changes their relationship with food. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I think she's astonishing. I think a lot of people would think you're astonishing too, Marion. And what I want to know is where you derive your hope from, because you must be driven to do all the things you do, to have that huge Twitter following, to write all those books, all those articles, all those interviews you give. You must be hopeful. Where do you derive that hope from? I teach students. I have young people in my classes who, th I work in a food studies department, I have young people in my classes who think they're going to change the world through food. I think they will. And they give me hope that there's a future that's really worth looking forward to. There are lots of them. Marion Nessel, thank you so much for sharing your insights and optimism with us today on The Recommended Dose. Okay, good. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to another episode of The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan. The podcast is produced by Cochrane Australia and is co-published by the BMJ. Special thanks to producer Shauna Hurley, audio editor Jan Mutz and Michael Economides at NYU's Steinhardt Recording Studios. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>